High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. I'm going to play a piece of music now. It's uh, from our good friends, U2. All right, well, apparently all you U2 fans, of course, know that that is Red Hill Mining Town. And Pascal Donoghue was speaking at the McGill Summer School last night. He said, you know, this is uh, steeped in a sense of abandonment. And uh, because when Bono sings, you're all that's left to hold on to, we have to acknowledge that a growing number of voters are asking what is there to hold on to in the world. And Pascal says that all of this means that left-wing policies will break this country. I'm delighted to welcome to the programme Councillor Gary Gannon, who, as a Social Democrat, represents North Inner City, Dublin. Councillor Gannon, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, I can't read out your entire tweet because it includes a word that we don't (laughs) use on the program, SH1T. But otherwise, you said the centre must hold stuff is just really boring SH1T politics. And isn't it so though? Um, it was interesting that you played that clip and Pascal referenced that particular song from you too, and also highlighted the um, fact that mining towns and former industrial heartlands feel a sense of abandonment, and then quoted that the centre must hold. When it's those same centrist neoliberal adherence to the market which has abandoned those towns, and I just thought it was kind of ironic. I suppose mm. that for me is, I have a little bit of frustration about that. Pascal kind of lamented that left-wing politics destroyed the country. I mean, I don't remember that great left-wing government of 2007 just before the crash. I don't remember ever having a left-wing government in Ireland. All the while we have kind of rising child homelessness, a perennial hospital crisis, and kind of an infrastructural malaise that's really affecting our competitiveness on a world stage. So I suppose for me, that's where I just felt it was really frustrating. And I've heard a lot about centrist politics and holding the centrist line from Leo Varadkar to Justin Trudeau and Macron. And I was like, how boring is that? Like, mm, where's, yeah. where's the New Deal? Where's the NHS? Where's the ambition? I mean, clearly the centre is not holding it. Things aren't working at All the right. moment. Yeah, but the only real example we have of a left, a real left-wing government is probably one of your heroes, Lenin. Uh, uh, And uh, it's interesting on Monday. Monday was the seventeenth of July, and uh, in twenty eighteen it'll be the centenary of the murder of the Tsar and his wife and his children. Um, Now, I'm totally opposed to left-wing politics, of course, because I agree with Pascal Donohue that they would break. The country. Interestingly, he said the country. He didn't say the economy. Sure. And um, in fairness, Leninist politics would probably not be the leftist politics that I adhere to. I'd be more looking at kind of the Nordic model. It's about investment in public services. It's about actually having evidence-based politics. And it's about actually, I'm going to pay me taxes 
and I'm going to do so because that's my form of nationalism and that's how I kind of demonstrate my patriotism. But I'd like to see that being torn when I go to a hospital, when I drive on the roads. So I don't think that would break the economy. In fact, if you look at what happened post-crash, it was the more higher tax economies which were able to survive after the crash, like the Netherlands or the Nordic countries again, whereas lower tax countries like ourselves and Britain we were decimated. Yes. And we're still feeling the benefit. We're but, still but feeling that. It is worrying. Actually, funny enough, uh, on my television screen here at Prime Minister's Question Time in, in uh, Westminster, Jeremy Corbyn is on his feet. Now, this is a man who, who got very close to being Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and who said to the people of that appalling tragedy in Grenfell Tower that they should go out and if they saw an empty apartment, they should just take it over. So... And then we saw marches down the street. Uh, we saw tweeting during court trials. We, we like the, yeah. There are deep worries suppose, about suppose, where you're going. And I suppose on the other end of the scale, that there's vulture funds here coming into this country and buying up properties. Um, a very extraordinary cheap rates when we have a homeless crisis, an escalating homeless crisis that affects all demographics. So there's two components of that. Well, both- yeah, sorry, I don't want to interrupt you in full flow, but there was an interesting point I thought about the vulture funds that uh, a civil servant, the head of the Department of Finance, who I don't know whether he's left, right, or centre, he said it was the only way we would do. So presumably, if you were Minister for Finance in, in a left government, uh, he, as head of the civil service, would have told you to do the same thing. I imagine he would have. I don't think our our financial services are bastions of left-wing politics (laughs) at the moment. (laughs) But I suppose um, Jeremy Corbyn is an interesting example because I've been really taken with Jeremy Corbyn the last year, as you can imagine. But Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto was very, very interesting. There was nothing radical about Jeremy Corbyn and Labour's manifesto. I mean, I think the the opening pages talked about kind of investors and protecting investors. It was a real example of social democratic politics that people were able to buy in because it was realistic and it worked. It wasn't about, okay, everything is for free. It was actually about, here are our ideas and here's how we'll pay for them and here's how they are demonstrably different for what's come in the last decade. Like for me, leftist politics are not about just standing with a placard in my hand, although I think there's a huge place for that. It's about evidence-based politics and it's about just saying, look, we're part of a society, we may have to pay taxes, but we get our services. And what Pascal has been doing and what Leo Varadkar is trying to do at the moment is trying to say that there is no alternative to their own approach to politics. And they're doing that probably out of fear of looking across the water and seeing Jeremy Corbyn rise. They have to make you believe that there's no alternative or that the alternative is scary. But it's actually not. Social democracy for me, left-wing politics for me, the more gentle, okay. the more inclusive form I, of I mean, I like it. I mean, I like it, okay? The best government that Britain ever had yes. was the left-wing government. The post-war Labour government under Clem Attlee. To this yes. day, because it was interesting you quoted Where's our New Deal? Referring to Roosevelt, um, our, our NHS, referencing that left-wing government. I agree. I mean, you'd kind of have me singled out as as the Antichrist of left-wingers. But, <laughs> but, but the point here is that they, they, this government attacks 
middle class people who don't have left wing views. I mean, it was the Finnegal oh. government who stole part of my pension, unbelievably by retrospective taxation. It's it's a Finnegal government that absolutely screwed up water charges and gave a hundred quid to people who didn't pay their water charges and so on, so on, so on. So they they have nothing uh, in in their policies that makes us believe them. But the problem is if your policies people believed they'd work, they'd vote for you. And since the foundation of the state, Irish people have never voted a left-wing government. And that's true, and that's their failure, George. I think that's something that we need to address. But I suppose we do that where our ideas. You know, for me, I'm not about kind of... I don't want a revolution. If we had a revolution, I would not know who my enemy was. But I do want a change of approach. Even look at our strategy towards Brexit. One of the big sticking points we have in terms of trying to attract companies in here following Brexit is where will we house them? I mean, where's their infrastructure? I mean, we're um, out there celebrating the fact that we have an extension on a tram line. That would be laughable in other European countries when we don't have things like broadband in rural Ireland. So when I heard Pascal talking yesterday about how left-wing politics would destroy the country, it was laughable in the sense that we haven't tried it yet and we haven't tried it correctly. We haven't tried these new deals and we haven't tried being ambitious in terms of being part of a wider society. I don't mind paying taxes. In fact, I really like it. But I would like to see the services that come from them. I wouldn't like to see the tax base eroded when we come to budgets. I don't like this idea of what Fine Gael tried to do when they say that there is a cohort of people out there who pay for everything and then there's a cohort who don't. I think that's divisionary and it's not the politics. All right. But if I look, let's let's talk now about the Social Democrats specifically, right? Um, because Dave Westport suggests that Social Democrats are no more left-wing than the PDs were. There is a point, surely, that the Social Democrats, um, if, you, if you look at your TDs as an example, are very, very different from... Uh, the, the, you know, solidarity uh, TDs are, surely. They're completely well, different. Like, your policies well, will be completely different from Paul Murphy or Richard Boy Barrett or Mick Wallace and others. Well, George, for me, I, I'm very new to politics. I'm probably first generation of post-graduate politics. And I grew up in the north inner city in a council house. And I suppose, for me, the most natural thing I could have done would be to join F one of what we describe as a four to left party and lament everything. But that's not how we want to do business. I actually want to be in government. I want to write legislation. I don't want to just kind of spend my career telling people about how they're poor and that's somebody else's fault. I want to say, look, here's my ideas of how we can make things different. And for me, that's why I'm a part of a party like the Social Democrats, because my aspiration is one day to be a minister in government presenting ideas, debating my ideas and highlighting how they are different from what came before. And if the possibility arises, I absolutely want to write legislation. And for me, my politics are not radical. I'm not looking for a revolution. I just want to say, here's how can we it can be a little bit different. But how can you be in government when some of the people who who are, and we have to use the word left because it's the only kind of, sure. you know, word we can use to describe where you stand versus where Pascal stands. Um, the, the left is 
utterly disjointed in Ireland and it's why it has never formed a government because you're you're completely different from Sinn Féin and you're completely different from Deputy Paul Murphy and, and others, Ruth Coppinger and others. You're complete, so you would have an enormous problem forming a government because you're all so disparate in your views because there is no question or doubt that there are parts of the left in Dáil Éireann who want revolution. Yeah, certainly. I'm not part of um for me that's why I joined the party like the Social Democrats. I genuinely like I'm thirty years of age at the moment. My ambition is to build this political party to the point where we can be a majority partner in the government. Like that's my only reason for being involved in politics. So for me I'm not looking to be part of if it happens, great, but my ambition is not to be part to bring a wide left cohort into government. But at the first at the first sign of power, one of the key for uh, founders of Social Democrats defected to Finnefall. At a, at yeah, and he's an adult and they were his politics and he made his decision and said, I know, but it. I mean, he was barely, the party was barely off the ground. It didn't take him long to change yeah. his, his shirt. Um, yeah, of course, but that was his decision. And I suppose for me, politics is not about kind of questioning someone else's decision. For me, I, we talk about long-term policies as the Social Democrats. We talk about how actually we should be planning for the next decade. So for me, we can't plan for the next decade and talk about policies and make short-term decisions. Like, we didn't get enough TDs over the line the last time. That was our failure. But the next time we might, or the time after that, but we need to keep building, keep moving, keep presenting our ideas, keep writing our policies. And that's our goal. You know, politics is not a death match for me. It's just about an exchange of ideas and building our movement. That's, that, that's my version of left-wing politics. But can you sell it? Because you haven't sold it so far. That's the challenge. And that is the challenge that lays out before us. And how do we sell? We need to be knocking at doors. We need to be using new technology. We need to be highlighting. But, and that, for me, is why Pascal's comments yesterday about bracketing the entire left and saying that we destroy the country. I think that's true on his part. He wants people to believe that there's no alternative. Our challenge is to demonstrate that there absolutely is. We point to examples like Nordic countries, like um, the, what you pointed out, the New Deal, the NHS. They're achievements of left-wing politics, and they're perfectly accessible. We can do them with a little bit of ambition. There's mo- no point just having a steady hand in control of finance if we're going in the wrong direction, if we have a housing crisis, if we have a hospital crisis, if we have an infrastructural malaise continually. Like, that's not a steady hand that we need. We need new ideas. We need, our ideas should be a little bit radical. We should be very ambitious. Yeah, but uh, I'm with the texter who says, when I hear left-wing politics, I immediately think of Sinn Féin and Paul Murphy. That's the problem, says the listener. Well, Sinn Féin have their own ideas, and I'm I'm not here to criticize any other party, but that's what they do well. That's what the Roy have always done well. They've labelled the left as something to be afraid of, something to be... And we don't do change too well in Ireland. Since the foundation of the state, we've had two and a half centre-right parties. So we don't do change well. So our challenge is actually promoting ideas. It's very difficult when you're starting out party, as we found out in the Social Democrats, but I fully accept that is our challenge. But what I would highlight is the fact that what we have at the moment clearly isn't working. And so say all of us. 
Absolutely. <laughs> Councillor Gary Gannon of the Social Democrats. Um, didn't Bertie Ahern once describe himself as a socialist, says Aidan Coyle of Dorky. I've great problems mentioning Bertie Ahern's name on air because I, my heart rate tends to go up. But in the interest of fairness, I'll mention your text. George, Fianna Fáil wrecked the economy. Then Fianna Gael ruined society. And you're afraid of the left. I know it's my big problem. It is my enormous problem. How, if God spares me, I'm going to vote in the, the, the next election. I suppose it's like my irrational fear of doggies. I just don't know what... I have an irrational fear of the left. Uh, and speaking of dogs, that's what I'm talking about next. Do you need to pet a dog to calm your fears? High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. I'm joined now by Fiona McDermott. Fiona is a veterinarian and also a member of the Veterinary Ireland Companion Animal Group. Fiona, welcome to the programme. Good morning, George. Now, what prompted me to call you was two things, really. One, I went into a restaurant and... Because I have an irrational fear of dogs, lo and behold, I jump six feet in the air and run to the far side of the restaurant because there's a dog there mm-hmm. uh, next to my table. And I'm first of all, I, I'm unhappy about it. But then I discovered this dog is wearing a sort of badge on its back which says, you know, uh, treat me nice because uh, I'm here to be petted or, or some sort of thing. I then discovered doing a bit of research that... You can buy these sort of badges in Aldi or Lidl or somewhere for about 30 quid. Uh, so anybody can do it. They don't have to have a medical certificate or whatever. And then they get a huge amount of advantages, like bringing it on aeroplanes and so on. Then I discover that somebody brought a turkey on an American airline claiming it was yeah. a therapy animal as well. So I looked up what animals are therapies, uh, dogs and Turkey or therapy animals, turkeys are included, and for some extraordinary reason, elephants are included. Now, I don't know how I get an elephant in my restaurant or my airplane, or but, your they're, airplane. but they're included. Now, I thought somebody like you, who's an expert in this field, might explain it all to me. Sure, no problem. Um, so, the dog you saw in the restaurant most likely was what we call an assistance dog. Okay, so there's, we'd, we'd often see two different types of dogs we see come in. One is a therapy dog and then the other is the assistance dog. And normally the assistance dog will wear, you know, some form of identification, um, ideally a little blue jacket. Um, and those dogs are, they, they have a number of different functions in the community. Um, obviously for someone, if you're, if you're a little bit uncomfortable around dogs, you know, it can be a bit of a shock to see them. But typically these dogs are specifically bred for a very kind, gentle and well-trainable disposition. So they're highly trained dogs, um, and they really are generally perfectly safe. Um, there's a number of different different um, oh, communities and um, organizations in Ireland that actually help develop these, these assistance dogs for people. So they might be used perhaps for people with autism. Um, they can be used for, for people who have autism. They're very useful to help kind of, you know, produce senses of reassurance and calmingness. Um, and also help self-confidence so they can get out and about, you know, in a more in a calmer way. They've been proven to um, significantly increase um, social interaction and language skills in children with autism. So they're, they're quite useful from that perspective and have a deep bond. 
Other dogs as well that you'll see that are assistance dogs can be mobility dogs. So it might be for somebody who has difficulty walking and actually, you know, having a dog alongside them helps with their mobility and stabilization so they can they can move around that way. And then you have really, really helpful dogs, the task-based dogs. So for people in wheelchairs, um, they would have a dog that can, you know, retrieve stuff from the ground for them, open up doors, can even load a dishwasher. <laughs> you know, in, in some cases, you've seen videos of it. So they're, they're, they're vitally important to the community. You see, now, Fiona, you, you, and you no doubt you deliberately intended to do so, make me feel terrible that not this, poor, all, that this poor woman who had this dog was suffering from all these kind of diseases and George didn't want to have her in the restaurant. Not true. Not, all, not, not true. Because, for instance, my, my, my first, the exposure to a therapy or working dog is, is probably the best part of a century old in other words the idea of a guide dog for the blind which is is where the idea of dogs helping people we've now reached the point where um you you can get a dog who actually sort of nudges you and says time to take your diabetes injection so i i yeah i get all that but when i investigate though i discover that you can buy this kind of badge for thirty quid, and then you can you have no disability, but you but it saves you um, leaving the dog at home. So you just walk into your favourite restaurant with a badge on, and obviously everybody's terrified to say boo. The other huge advantage of this is. It'll probably cost you money on an airline to bring your dog. But if your dog is described as a therapy dog, you need to to pet him every now and again to calm your fear of flying. They don't charge anything. So people are avoiding paying a fare for their dogs by simply having badges that they buy in their local store. That's my issue. Well, I think, I mean, anyone who's using dogs in that manner, they're, you know, it, it, it's completely disingenuous. It's not the purpose. And it also massively undermines the people who have great use for it. Um, and I suppose it's like anything in life, you know, I mean, if people use fake disabled parking signs on their cars, you know, it's, it's, it's a problem for society at large and it's, it's massively disingenuous. And, you know, I mean, people in restaurants and that are, you know, should be feel comfortable to ask a person, for the bona fides of well, what is the dog here for and, you know, under what circumstance. And, you know, anyone who's honest and has no problem should have no problem explaining it. In fact, should be proud to explain what their dog is doing there and, and why it's there. Um, using it for, for to get cheap airline flights and things like that is, is just, you know, incredible abuse, really, of what is actually a very, very important you know, system. Because uh, I'm, I'm, a lot of my research on this, in fact, I readily admit comes from America, where the airlines may have different rules to mm-hmm. European airlines. But in America, you don't have to ring up the airline in advance and say, listen, I'm coming with a dog. They cannot refuse you uh, if you come with your therapy animal. Uh, and, I mean, what about, because you're a veterinarian, you know a lot about animals but but you also know about a human response to animals so how do you what about somebody like me i i it's irrational my fear of dogs i was never bitten by a dog or anything it's just irrational i feel the way about giraffes uh, elephants like about, cats or whatever feel that yeah. way about animals and, and lots of other things you know i mean and i suppose it's it's a it's a genuine phobia it's a genuine issue just as much as the person who gets um you know a, a 
a, a release or a comfort from an animal has a genuine issue. I mean, that the use of actual therapy dogs for people bring dogs in with volunteers into nursing homes and hospices and, and things like that. You know, there, there's scientific data to prove that that in the right people, obviously, helps to reduce heart rate massively, can reduce incidence of cardiovascular disease. You know, so there's, there's, there's positives like that. But obviously, for, for the person like yourself, I mean, it's, it's going to be a, a, a scary situation. Um, and as regards Irish travel and Irish airports and that for, 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 for animals, it's massively more strict. Um, it, you can't just turn up with your dog and put them on a plane. Within the EU, we have a pet passport scheme, and there's a lot of paperwork to be done before an animal is even allowed cross a border, particularly for you know rabies control and that. So I was about to say that yeah. to happen here in Ireland. Yeah, the issue of rabies, um, mm-hmm. uh, which like this country has avoided rabies like astonishingly successfully, because yeah. certain continental countries rabies is in fact endemic, and if you it get is. bit uh, bitten by a dog in in some continental countries, you're in real danger. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas we're very lucky in this country, and I was talking and somebody who wanted to bring their dog in from Italy, uh, two dogs, in fact. Now, they had to go through enormous hoops, which, in fact, would cost about €2,000 between passports and all that sort of stuff. So, in fact, it was cheaper for them to drive from continental Europe to Ireland rather than go through the whole airport thing. Well, I mean, the airport, the flights are what make it very, very expensive. But irrespective of how you cross the border in, in, in Europe, um, the rabies controls are the same. Oh, so, sure. But yeah. but the overall cost would be cheaper. Oh, yeah, That's driving I mean. would be cheaper. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we would see that regularly in the practice. You know, people who are going on holidays or going home to Eastern Europe or where, whatever, wherever they're traveling, um, bringing their animals, it works out cheaper for them to drive. Not to mention as well, some air, airlines just won't carry the animals. You but know, it, the, the, it doesn't always happen that they will carry. Now, when you, like, it, there's no argument when you start talking about Children with autism or people in nursing homes. I had an experience. My my own mother in her in her declining years got wonderful support from a, just having a dog. I mean, no mm-hmm. special kind of dog, just having a just dog, having a dog. Yeah. because it, she it, was it, alone. But it doesn't the misuse of it, what you call disingenuous use of it, then damages the whole concept. Uh, I mean, for instance, I was talking to a university professor on this very program a week ago. And if you're doing an exam in British universities and you suddenly say, listen, this exam is really stressing me out. They have a special room and now students can go in there with a dog. Yeah, yeah. I mean... The thing is, I mean, if a student goes in there with a dog um, and if it helps keep them calm, I mean, surely that as a treatment option is preferable than to a student on medication that helps keep you calm, for example. You know, and if that can be facilitated in a way that doesn't impact upon any other students, I would have no problem with that being, you know, a recognized therapy that, you know, has been okayed by medical professionals involved. All right. Well, what will I do the next time when I I go in for my... uh... Uh, chicken a la king and there's a, a four-footed f- uh, animal sitting next to me. What should I do? Well, I mean, I guess if you wanted to speak to the, the, the restaurant owners and just say that you, know, that you have a fear and that either you'd like to be moved or could, if you were there first, could the other people be moved? I, you know, I think uh, that's, you know, we all have right. to live in society together. I think that works just well. All right. We'll talk about an elephant on another day. <laughs>
<laughs> Hopefully there'll be no elephants in any restaurants anytime soon, please God. Fiona, thank you so much for joining me. Fiona McDermott there, veterinarian and a member of Veterinary Ireland Companion Animal Group. Your thoughts. Uh, anybody else fear dogs like I do? 53106, cost 30 cents. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. It is rare that the individual is greater than the brand, but in the case of my next guest, that is certainly so. All I have to say is Michael O'Leary, and we all know it's Ryanair. Michael O'Leary, welcome to the programme. Good afternoon, George Hook. We all know it's news talk. <laughs> Listen, thank you for helping me out here because I did a piece on therapy dogs on aeroplanes. Yeah. Uh, where stand you if somebody wants to sit next to me with their uh, dachshund? Not possible. I'm afraid the only dogs we allow on board our aircraft are the trained guide dogs for the blind. All right. Other than that, we don't allow any uh, other animals on board the aircraft because it upsets so many of the other passengers. Uh, right, okay. Well, that's a quick answer to, to the question, so we all know where we stand. Mm. Um, the, the other thing, I just because there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about aviation, but I, my Time magazine came through my letterbox this week, and Leo Varadkar is on the cover. Um, how's he matching up to your original hopes for him? Because you were a big fan, I think, weren't you? Hey, it's very early days, you know, but, you know... Um, I think it's great to see an Irish Prime Minister on the cover of Time. It's good publicity for the country. It's good for the reputation of the country. Um, and I see very little downside. Uh, as far as Leo is concerned, he's just taken over as Taoiseach. We would certainly uh, see it as a breath of fresh air. Um, but like everything else, I want to see action now. And that's why we're calling this morning for the some action on the second runway, yeah. which has now been delayed. Well, that was a neat segue, uh, which you did mm. for me. Um, what about this second runway? I mean, for, for lay people who all they know is to go to the airport and they get on a plane, for the industry, what's the posi- what, what, what is the importance of a second runway? At the moment, Dublin is full at peak times, which is essentially the mornings and the evenings, George. There is a plan to build a second runway, but there's some uh, planning restrictions, one of which involves allowing the IAA to monitor the noise of aircraft taking off and the noise reductions that we've committed to. Um, That hasn't proceeded because the uh, statutory instrument giving the uh, power to the IAA to take over this or to begin this noise monitoring has been tied up for over a year in the Attorney General's office. And we're calling today for the Attorney General's office to issue the statutory instrument and let's get on with the job. So are you telling me, McGlory, that everybody is on board with this? The planning authority, the Georgian Society, Antashka, heaven knows what. They're all OK with the second runway, except it needs a bit of paperwork. Is that what you're really telling no, me? No, I mean, there's always going to be a couple of NIMBYs who will be not, or not OK with the second runway, those people who bought houses around Dublin Airport. But to be fair to Dublin Airport, they've offered to buy their houses at 30% over market value uh, just to buy them off. But the thing that's holding it up at the moment and that is holding up the commencement of the works is a 12, inexplicable 12-month 12 delay in the Attorney General's office issuing this statutory instrument. Um, it's inexplicable. Uh, we can't give an explanation as to why it's taken a year to issue a simple statutory instrument and we're calling for an end to these delays. 
Well, how are the British? On. Yeah, how are the British doing it? Because they're trying to build another runway at the Heathrow. It doesn't oh, work British better in the UK. No, I mean they're making a spectacular mess of it. But to be fair to the British, at least they have three competing airport. They have three competing airports in London. We're stuck with only one monopoly airport here in Dublin. The runway is now full. It's full at peak times. We'd like to grow more in Ireland, but we can't because we can't base any more aircraft here. All right. So the, what do you hope of the Attorney General doing something? We'd like him to dot the I's, cross the T's, issue the statutory instrument, and let's get on with the job. I think it's an area where Leo Varadkar's government can begin to demonstrate that the old indolence has now changed. There's a new management in charge, and they're going to get things done. All right, well, I wish you well. Um, you, Hope so. you, you've been taking a bit of stick, which I thought was a bit unfair, and I was delighted to see then you issued uh, um, a statement with your typical Ilan on press releases saying you'd done more for Irish families than anybody, other airline. I might give you a text from a listener who said yeah. he's just come back from the Canary Islands for a hundred euro return. Uh, then he went from Berlin to the Canaries with, mm. with Ryanair. He wants to thank you for enabling him to travel across Europe uh, for next to nothing compared to the old days of Monopoly, which cost an awful lot of money. Well, we'd like to thank him and the other 130 million customers who fly with us this year for supporting Ryanair. Now, having said that, though, you're yeah. coming into ferocious stick for these self-same families. You're mm. separating them uh, in the interest of filthy commerce. It's wonderful, isn't it? Well, firstly, we don't separate families because we've required the families to sit together. But there is some controversy at the moment over, you know, somebody, people who are whinging on about having to buy a reserved seat for two euros if they want to sit beside somebody. We simply reply and say, look, the policy has been the same now for about two years. If you want a free of charge random seat, that's what you're getting, a random seat. And if you're not happy with that, buy a reserved seat and sit where you like. And the cost starts from just two euros. But stop whining. If you don't want to pay the two euros, that's fine. We understand. But then you take a random seat. But uh, the thing is, I remember you having a ferocious rap with Willie Walsh, then mm. Chief Executive Air Lincoln, on my programme, right? And yeah. you were giving out to him about all these frills like booking seats and everything. And then yeah. uh, uh, the problem with you surely is that when people used to fly with Ryanair, they knew what they were getting. There was the 100 metre dash to get to the steps to get in. All changed. I, I know. We're now being nice to everybody. That's but that's your failing now because you've been nice. You're just nobody. Everybody, the hundred and thirty million went for you because you were the cheapest, and now you have all these add-ons like priority queuing, or you know. Yeah, but but the great thing about the, the the add-ons, George, is they're all entirely each customer's choice. If you don't want them, don't add them on. It's your choice. We have about 50% of our customers now are paying for reserve seats. That's about 65 million customers who pick, who want to sit somewhere specifically, and they pay to do it. And we have 65 million who don't care where they sit, and they're happy to sit wherever they're allocated randomly by the computer. We get a couple of people then whining on, oh, as mo- you know, when I'm entitled to sit beside somebody when I select a random seat. You're not. But if you want to sit beside somebody... Pay the two euros, and if you don't, stop complaining. The key thing in Ryanair this year, I mean, as you go back to that, when we were fighting with Willie Walsh all those years ago, the average fare on Ryanair in those days was probably about 60 euros. 
This year, the average fare is down at €40. Euros. The flights are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, which is why we're growing like gangbusters this year, 130 million customers. And if we have the occasional, you know, uh, some people complain because there's, they certainly have to pay for something that they used to get for free when they were paying 200 quid to Aer Lingus, then it's our job to educate them. It's no longer 200 quid, but if you want to pay for an additional service, pay for it. If you don't want to pay for it and you want a random seat, that's equally no problem. We're happy to we're happy to welcome you on board. But you know, I have a listener given out about yeah. uh, suitcases. You're charging yeah. for suitcases, but uh, again, like you, ter- I only flew with you once or twice. But I was terrified out of my mind that mm. you wouldn't. So I, I was out about two hours before the flight took off sure. to be at the head of the queue. I checked my bag about forty-two times to see it was the right size. I actually bought a yeah. bag from you to make sure it was the right Attaboy. size. Yeah, but but I knew what I was getting for my Precisely. money. So why now, are the pe- amazing thing is, you know, what we've changed. The customer behaviour has changed in a way that has allowed us to reduce the airfares. When we first started charging for a check-in bag five or six years ago, eighty percent of our customers used to check in a bag because it, you know they didn't think about it. It and it made the travel much more complicated. Today, because we charge for a check-in bag, less than twenty percent of passengers check in a bag. Now, 80% of passengers have changed the way they travel. They travel lighter. They don't have to queue at an airport check-in desk. They arrive at the airport, go straight through security, get on board the plane, and they don't have to wait at a carousel on arrival. And all of that was possible simply by charging for a check-in bag. And what people misunderstand is somehow we want the money for the check-in bags. Actually, we don't. We simply want to encourage you to travel without the check-in bag. You're then it make it much cheaper for us to carry you, and you have a much easier travel experience. But it, 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 you can tell me, but you know I won't tell anybody. Mm. Um, like in reality, this famous random CZ yours, like yeah. you, you actually tell the computer, listen, separate them, put ten rows between them, and the next time they travel, they buy the seat. No, not true. But what the computer does, as more and more people are buying the, the reserved seats, most people prefer either a window seat or an aisle seat. Now, it's true, yes, that means there's fewer window and aisle seats for the random customer, and there's much more middle seats for the random customer. But if you chose a random seat, that's what you're getting, is a random seat. And these uh, people who are, I'm a family of four, and we're entitled to sit together, you're not entitled to sit together. If you chose a random seat, you'll get a random seat. And that's not because we want your money. We're very happy. But if you chose a random seat, that's what you're getting. All right. Now, the interesting thing is the holiday flights. A beat there are given out uh, yards about, uh, you know, uh, all the drink that's served on planes. And it must yeah. be very difficult for you, too. Uh, what's your policy about drink on planes? I mean, given that you probably make a huge profit on us. Well, we don't. I mean, I think the real challenge, particularly on some of these holiday flights, I mean, look, the amount of drink that's served on board a plane is pretty limited on a one or two hour flight. And our cabin crew, if they think somebody's misbehaving or somebody is under the influence of alcohol, won't serve them. The real challenge for us in the in, and industry itself is when you have flight delays, I think the real problem is there's far too many people drinking at the airports. They get on board and they're already half full of alcohol or they've had a flight delay and they drink too much or in some cases they're imbibing other substances and they tend to misbehave. Now, we have a zero-tolerance policy if we think our gate agents think somebody is, you know, drunk or under the influence of something at the gate, we simply won't allow them to travel because they'll compromise safety. 
But we do need to be able to control or limit, I think, the amount of alcohol that's served to people, particularly at airports, and particularly when there's been a flight delay or disruption. The flight, the amount of drinks served on board a one or a two hour flight is actually minimal. Um, and that's not going to be the cause of the problem. But well, what would you do about sensitive. the airport? What would, I mean, you can't stop the airport serving drink. They don't know whether the, it's, it's a Ryanair or Aer Lingus passenger who's delayed or somebody's just having a drink. Well, in no? actual fact, what I would do, you know, most airports, if you buy anything at an airport, they want to see your boarding card. And it's reasonably simple for an airport or a bar at an airport to, to limit the amount of alcohol served to one boarding card to one or two drinks. I think that would eliminate a lot of the problem. But the problem gets slightly overplayed. Like, we operate more than 2,000 flights every day. You know, we may have disruptions on one or two flights. And usually it's a flight, it's a holiday flight. It's a Palma or it's an Ibiza. Now, on the Ibiza flights, we've changed our rules completely from some UK airports where we now don't allow anybody to get, to bring any bottles on board the aircraft. Because in some cases, we were only allowing bottles of water on board the Ibiza flights, and in some cases, they fill the water bottle full of vodka. So we now actually take all of the bottles off them. But, you know, it's, you know I wouldn't want to overplay it. It's a mi- very minor issue. Our cabin crew are generally very good at dealing with those problems, which is why really they happen so rarely. But it's a problem for all airlines. It's much more of a problem on long-haul flights where, you know, they have a longer duration to be drinking or Okay. It is true, I think, that yeah. whether you're a hotelier or a restaurateur or an airline, the people who complain tend to get more uh, column inches than the people who think you're great. So, therefore, I could yeah, probably tell you that Kate, Greg, Finbar and Cork and mm. tons of other people are all saying thanks very much for making flying cheaper. Uh, Finbar and Cork's quite interesting. When he flies with you, he wears two shirts, two pants, one pair of shoes, socks and jocks, <laughs> and he rolls them all, everything else up and puts it in his pocket. O'Leary is the man, he says. But why doesn't he just put him in a carry-on bag and bring <laughs> it on board? Like We now, I mean, as part of the always getting better policy, we now allow passengers to bring two bags on board. You know, Now, one should be a small bag, but in reality, look, we have never wanted to stop people bringing the bags. We just want you to carry your own bags on board and stop okay. wasting half your life and our time checking them in at airports. Now, there's a ton of people in the west of Ireland who are flying from Shannon to England to walk, yeah. and you've decided to drop the early morning flight from Shannon to Stansted. And there's Simon and Fiona and a ton of other people are saying, we can't get to work on time. I, I, I don't think that's correct, but I mean... Well, it's for to, some of the year, yeah, you I, drop it. I mean, I mean, we do have an aircraft based in Stansted and Shannon, and to the best of my knowledge, the first flight in the morning goes to London. But, I mean, I'll certainly check into that if we have somehow, we may have moved it onto a Stansted-based aircraft, which I would be surprised at because the traffic flow generally out of Shannon to London is into London early in the morning and back in the evening. That's the way the flights operate from Dublin, from Cork and from Shannon. What about, the fu- what about the future, uh, Brexit? You've been very vocal. Oh, are, you, are you serious or looking yeah. for headlines? No, no, look, people really don't underestimate, I mean, and largely because we take our news from the UK, people do not understand what how difficult Brexit is going to get, particularly in our business. Now, a lot depends on what the British do, but if the British carry out their threat and leave the European Union and leave open skies, which is basically the aviation European Union, there then will be, there is no legal basis on which airlines can fly between Europe and the UK or from the UK to Europe. That has to be replaced with something, and it has to be replaced with something in about the next 12 months. 
and the British are completely unprepared. There is no bilateral negotiations going on. They don't understand, in my mind, how much the French and the Germans in particular want to do them down, mainly to demonstrate to everybody else you shouldn't leave the European Union because look what happened to the British. And there is a real prospect now uh, that there will be no flights now for a period of weeks or a period of months after the end of after April 2019. And that is because there will be no legal basis for those flights. And this will affect Ireland very badly. We simply cannot show up on the 1st of April 2019 and fly to the UK because there will not be any agreement or international agreement under which those flights can operate. Ryanair is a European airline. We can fly from Ireland to Europe. And I think when the British people begin to understand, A, that they were lied to by the people, by the Brexiteers, and B, that their only holiday options for summer 19 is drive to Scotland or get the ferry to Ireland, they're going to have a different view of the whole Brexit um, operation. But it is that serious. And it's not me making PR. That is the legal reality, because the problem with Brexit, George, is it's a guillotine. It is happening. A guillotine comes down on the 29th of March 2019. That is now less than 18 months away. And unless it's up to the British to negotiate a deal with the Europeans before that, or that guillotine comes down. All right. Um, Understandably, people are getting on to you with what a personal queries, but Pisa was was a place that was always of interest to me. Um, uh, I took a holiday there one time. Uh, Cork to Pisa, please bring it back now. It was always full and now you've stopped it, the listener says. Yeah, I mean, my, I, I apologise, George, but we now operate more than 2,000 routes. <laughs> and I really, there was a time in Ryanair when I could tell you the flight times for the 25 exactly. routes we operated between Ireland and the UK. I don't know what the hell we do anymore between Cork and Ibiza. Yeah, I'm sure. But if we stopped it, it's because there were flying people somewhere else exciting from Cork during the summer. Yeah, I, I have this passion, as you know, for frequent flyer miles. Given mm. that you've copied their lingus in everything with uh, priority boarding and all this stuff, when are you going to bring in frequent flyer miles? Never. Uh, because, you know, everybody, frequent flyers with Ryanair save money every time they fly. Now, I think what will happen, we're starting this at the My Ryanair, where people become members of My Ryanair. I think we'll have a frequent flyer or an incentive for every individual customer, but it will consist of if you flew with us six times last year, and next year you fly with us seven or eight times, we'll give you a discount on the seventh of the incremental flights. All right. But this old idea of, you know, having some expensive system of credit cards that we post you out your points that become worthless anyway. I mean, Aer Lingus have recently scrapped their point system. Like, those frequent flyer schemes are a waste of time. They're just an excuse for people paying too high fares or companies paying high fares to their employees and the employees getting some benefit. Mm. We uh, don't believe in high fares. We think everybody should pay low fares every time they fly. I, I must say, you get 10 out of 10 for consistency. That's precisely what you told me when you had the row with Willie Walsh. And we were right. <laughs> Willie, Willie finished up leaving Aer Lingus because he couldn't compete with Ryanair's low fares. Um, can I get back to the runway because yes. it's a key thing for development not just for Ryanair but for Dublin Airport in for general Ireland. yeah the yes. thing like if you 
People bought houses near the airport in the clear understanding, you have to assume, that they knew they were next to an airport. But yeah. if the number of flights, say, for argument's sake, doubles, then all the cups in your in, in your locker uh, shake when other flights are taken off or whatever. But Isn't there... This is, I think, an yeah. important question because as a layman... Don't you, because of noise restrictions, mm. have to slow the plane down or something when you're taken off? And we, isn't there a safety concern? I don't mean you, I mean airplanes. Yeah, we, isn't we, there a, cons- a safety concern? They do. There are very strict noise procedures for takeoffs and landings at Dublin Airport. And in fact, that's why we need this statutory instrument. We need it issued by the Attorney General's office so that the IEA can overtake or monitor that information and ensure that the airlines are complying with those noise regulations. But the point I make, and you're right, yes, is the number of flights will increase if we want to continue to grow traffic, tourism and jobs here in Ireland. But the new aircraft we take delivery of next year in August 19, which is the new 737 MAX aircraft, the noise on that that aircraft makes is 90% lower than the aircraft we were operating just five years ago, the 737-200. I mean, the engine technology, both in terms of reduced fuel consumption and reduced noise, is has advanced incredibly. And we will be operating, if we can put these aircraft into Dublin, they will reduce the noise over our existing fleet by about another 40% straight away. And I think people who live and work in around the airport, even the residents in Port Marnock, you know, Noise has improved dramatically over where it was 20, 30 years ago. You know, if you were in Forest Little or Port Marnock, you could hear the planes for miles away. Now you can see the planes, but you can rarely hear them. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. I have, Thanks, to, tell you, I have to tell you that you do have a fan in Mrs. Hook ever since you personally checked her in. And the daughter hooks as well. I mean, we, we're very happy to be carriers of choice for the attractive half of the hook family. And if the ugly fella flies with the high fare competitor, it's his loss. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Michael O'Leary of Ryanair. In just a moment, the dangers of extreme sports. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. All right. Uh, well, a domestique, or in other words, a middle-of-the-road cyclist, but nevertheless Tour de France cyclist, uh, Pavel Poljanski, um, posted a picture of his legs at the end of, I think, stage 16. And it was an extraordinary picture because, of course, the veins absolutely stood out on his legs. And to anybody unfamiliar... Uh, with extreme sport, it became uh, quite upsetting. Um, I'm joined in the studio by Paul Opperman, sports therapist, director of the Dublin Sports Clinic. Uh, sports Clinic, you can find if you know the Ginger Man Pub or Davenport Hotel. It's that neck of the woods, South Cumberland Street. Paul, welcome to the programme. Thanks, George. Thanks now, for the thing about extreme sport, like once upon a time, like say, people of my age, yeah. The marathon was only done by Olympic athletes. Now housewives are doing the marathon. Yeah. So there's a ton of average people, if I can put that, doing extreme sports. What are the dangers of that then? 
Well, I think the first thing you need to look at, I think that the appetite for people to go out and train and train um, has changed massively over the last five or ten years, you know, and I think that that's a really, really good thing. You know, um, I think that, you know, it's it's very easy to look at the kind of the one or two stories that will portray something as a negative. Right. Whereas we actually need to look at the positive side of it. So you're completely correct. You know, back 10 years ago, you know, you would have struggled to get a couple of hundred people running a 5K race. You know, now you've got a few thousand people doing a 5K or a 10K um, as a training run, you know, on a Wednesday evening in one of the business house races around Dublin, around Cork or around any of the cities around. So I think that there has been a huge shift. Um, And I think that as people, that kind of attitude towards training has shifted, people have looked at a lot of different ways to actually go out and challenge themselves. Yeah, uh, the domestic, the cyclist, the picture of his legs, uh, what what really shocked people who might be non-sporting was the fact that the veins were so obvious. Now, I made the point that, for instance, bodybuilders Mm. um, do the same thing uh, and you see all these veins in the bodies because the cyclist or the bodybuilder has such a low fat content. Isn't that right? Agreed. So therefore, because there's no fat, the veins stick out. That doesn't mean there's any danger. No, there's no danger. And and I think think it's it's, it's good that we, let's go back and have a look at that, have a chat about that picture, right? I must admit, it's something that did strike me when I had a little look at it. Um, And I suppose coming from a sports background, I looked at it and I said, wow, that guy's in great shape. I'm sure if my mom had a look at that, she'd have said, oh my God, I hope Paul's not doing anything like that. I don't want him to have legs like that so I think it's it's kind of that perception and maybe it's a generational thing I think if you look at that picture right I think you have to look at it and look at the kind of the, the framework that surrounds it right um, that picture is uh, and I'm quoting directly from the article right so me and you sitting here right at rest have about five litres of, le- uh, of blood per minute pumping through our legs Okay, if we were to both sit up on exercise bikes in the studio, right, that would uh, in theory increase to about 20 litres. Now, a lot of people are doing that in what they call spinning. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Right. And that's happening. And that's a brilliant thing. Right. Just to get back to the picture. Right. The elite guys through a lot of training. Right. Are able to get that kind of that rate of flow through the legs up to about 40 litres a minute. Now, their bodies need that. And they train blood flow. Blood flow. Right. So they can double what potentially me and you can do as untrained athletes here. Right. So that picture is is sort of is is a coming together of a number of things. It's capillary expansion. Right. Because obviously that flow has to go somewhere. So the blood capillaries open up and it's blood volume. All right. Because there's a huge amount going through. We've already heard that in the article. Um, And like you said, it's low body fat levels. Right. So these guys are consuming somewhere in the region of 8000 calories a day. Right. Now, me and you, we're trying to consume what we're hopefully consuming two and a half thousand. Right. On a weekends that might go up if we have a couple of pints. Right. But but they're using uh, they're eating 8000 calories a day, but they're not gaining a pound. They're probably because. Yeah. Because of the extreme nature of the exercise. Yeah. And I think I think what you're saying is right. Like, I mean, if you look at the Tour de France, I mean, it's probably the original extreme event. You know, I mean, you know, the numbers on it are just are fascinating in one way and scary in another, you know, but the difference between sort of me going out and trying to attempt something like that or you or anybody else is that these guys are, they have, they're obviously massively talented in their own right, in their sport. They've got years behind them in terms of sports science and training years. They've got the best teams, whether it's strength and conditioning, physios, etc. behind them, right? So these guys have 
all the recipes to succeed and get through it, yeah, which makes it less but, extreme. Uh, but you made a very interesting point right at the beginning. Mm. You said, I looked at those legs and thought, gosh, he's really fit. Mm. However, if my mother looked at him, she'd have a heart attack. Yeah. So therefore, was this Tour de France rider not doing a disservice almost to his sport by putting up the picture? I think, I think you know, you, you made the comment there, like he, he's not a name that I think would jump off the page to myself, yourself or anybody else out there. Um, you know, he's not the Froome. So, you know, these guys are taking a picture and they're effectively fishing for likes within social media. You know, they're looking at their own, their own kind of, I suppose, their, their own kind of presence um, online uh, and they're, they're trying to boost who they are. Um, and I think that, was he doing them a disservice? No, I think it's it's a very interesting. We're talking about cycling here. And I think that that's interesting. I think he hasn't done, if people are having a normal conversation about a picture that they've seen, I think that's a really good service to yeah, a Yeah, but they might be having a normal conversation, which <laughs> is part of the worry. My guest, Paul Opperman, sports therapist and director of Dublin Sports Clinic in South Cumberland Street. Uh, it's a uh, Household income and expenditure from the CSO next.